You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So we're in Psalm 39, we're going to do 40 and 41, and that will close out the first book of Psalms. The book of Psalms, again, is five different books that we often just call Psalms, but this will finish the first book tonight. So Psalm 39, let's read, well, let's read the, the superscript. It says, for the choir director for Jejuthun, a Psalm of David. Now this character, Jejuthun, he was one of the musicians appointed by David to lead Israel's worship. You find his name in 1 Chronicles. So let's read the first three verses and then we'll go in. I said I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I refrained even from good. My heart was hot within me while I was musing. The fire burned and then I spoke with my tongue. Now, we don't know exactly when in David's life this psalm was written. Some people uh, say that maybe it was during a time of sickness. Maybe it was near the end of his life as he was sort of getting into his twilight years and looking back over everything he'd accomplished. And you'll pick up on on the theme of human mortality as we go through. But we can know that David is obviously struggling with some strong feelings uh, towards his enemies. We know that David was persecuted a lot throughout his journey up to the throne. And he's worried in this sense that if he speaks and lets his feelings out, that will produce sin in him. He calls it specifically a sin with my tongue. And I think we all understand this feeling. I think we all know the feeling that we have when our words let us down. And particularly often when we're speaking about those we disagree with. And the first thing that struck me as I really read these first three verses is what a lesson this is for us as Christians in today's society. Because everything that we see and read and hear at the moment, to me, it just seems uh, so polarised and so, uh, the words are just so full of hate, they're manipulative. There's just always a a motive you sense behind everything that you hear these days. Uh, And it's quite depressing. So as Christians and as following David's example here, we need to be very careful what we say about people. And I would say especially the people that we disagree with. And just give me, let me take that further. You see, when we speak about people we disagree with in in a way that would probably fall under the category of David's sin of the tongue here, it's very easy to say the truth about someone you disagree with and explain why you disagree with, to actually framing them in a slightly different and negative light because when you do that if you frame them as the enemy or the opposition or the more common term in today's climate would be they are the problem you know their ideology is what's wrong with society you hear these this sort of rhetoric going on the whole time but when you do that you you kind of frame them for for other people in a sense you are villainizing people and we know as christians we don't wrestle against flesh and blood we wrestle against uh, spiritual powers behind these things so when we you, we can use our tongues and we can cast people in an evil light you see when a society at large does that for me it's only one small step from having that first stage to then people rising up and saying well if that is true if they are the problem if they are evil we need to get rid of them in fact not just get rid of them we actually have a moral duty to get rid of them and Unfortunately, we've seen that play out many, many times in history. You'll find it through all of these sorts of uh, political climates when politics is elevated to, to the place of God. People are so angry with their enemy that they do honestly feel there is a moral right to remove the other person. 
and sort of pragmatism takes over, it doesn't really matter of the means that you use. And that has played out many times in history. So I think that's a lesson for us today. Before we say, we think like David, guard the sins of my tongue. And then he says, I will, I will guard my mouth as with a, with a muzzle. As I said, it was really hard not to make a, a mask joke when I was studying this, but I thought it would be totally inappropriate. So I'm not going to do it. But, so he guards his mouth with a muzzle especially while the wicked are in his presence, where his enemies are with him, because that's the time when you want to really get into an argument or let your true feelings be known. But notice it says that it was really David's fear of being chastised by the Lord. That was his motivation. He didn't want to fall into sin and be chastised like he was in those Psalms we studied the other week. And then notice it says in verse uh, two, I refrained even from good. I was mute and I was silent and I refrained even from good. Now, is that what the Lord wants with our silence? It seems like he maybe takes it a little too far here. He doesn't want to sin with his mouth speaking against his enemies, but he gets to a stage where he actually is too scared to speak that he is completely silent, and he doesn't even speak good. I'd say that sometimes we do need to speak up. We just need to speak words that are carefully chosen, and I would say committed to the Lord. And then in verse 3, my heart was hot within me, and while I was musing, fire burned. And some of you may know that feeling. You've got something that the Lord has convicted you about. You've got something you feel you really needed to say to someone, but you didn't. You missed the opportunity. You get this in witnessing a lot, whether you feel the Lord's told you to witness to someone and you just don't. And then for like, you know, you just sort of builds up on you until, you know, the grace of God, you often get another opportunity when that happens. But this is what I believe David is here. He was too silent to the point that these words were just burning within him. While I was musing, the fire burned. I like that expression. He kept it bottled up and it didn't go well for him. But David, let's read on. David does do what is right here in verse 4. He says, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as hand breaths and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath, Selah. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. So David doesn't break his silence just by seeing these people and just letting it all out. He doesn't attack them. He doesn't want to explain to them why they are wrong. He is right in the situation. They've acted wrongly and he's the righteous one in the situation, which are all, let's be honest, right? things you would want to do in these sorts of situations to justify yourself, let them know. We all sort of have that urge in us when we're put in these situations, setting them straight. Nope, he turns to the Lord and he prays. And again, that is a very good example of wise, a wise way to choose your words. David found relief in expressing his frustration to God first. And this is a thing that we often forget. Look, life is going to throw these situations at you where you do get very frustrated. People are doing things wrong and it does make you kind of mad and it is difficult. You hold in your tongue it's okay to go to the Lord. We see this over and over in the Psalms. Go to the Lord, express your frustration to him. It's not like he doesn't really kind of know what's bothering you, but we sort of do this thing where we don't go to the Lord and we just bottle it all up and we have that burning feeling and it ends up building up in us into frustration. And then actually, I don't know if it's true in my life, but that will actually then cause you to sin because you'll be like, oh, you know, you get that attitude and I can't be bothered with it. But when you feel that, you take that frustration to the Lord. He knows, he's the counsellor, he's the one you talk to on these things. This is David's example. He prayed that God would also teach him to appreciate the brevity of human life. 
And he goes on, you know, my breath, my, it's just a hand breath. I, li- I like the use of the word phantom there. You don't read that often in scripture, but phantom. Uh, it's like it's just a sort of, you're just passing through, a vapor passing through this world. It's a, you know, quite a powerful picture. This is why most people assume David was quite old at the time of writing this psalm. He was looking back and his life seemed fairly short, looking back on it. Even someone like David. Remember, David had an amazing up and down. A military leader, an accomplished soldier, a king, a musician. You know, the, the, the one who received the covenant, the covenant of David from the Lord. But even, even a man like that, he recognizes in the end, he is just a vapor passing through this world. And this is a good reminder of, to us, the pursuits of life in the grand scheme of things, I would say not relatively insignificant, but you understand what I mean. It's not saying things that we do to build into the, the kingdom, but within, you know, we're here just for a second. So we want to do, it reminds me of that little song, you know, only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And that's the sort of attitude that I think David's expressing here. Let's read verse seven. And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. I have become mute. I do not open my mouth because it is you who have done it. Remove your plague from me because of the opposition of your hand I am perishing. With reproofs you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere breath. Selah. So sort of in light of this, David throws himself upon the Lord. He knows that in the, the years where he is in his life, his only hope is really in God. And that's not a wherever you are in life, that's just a general principle, I think. As a believer, we know that our only hope is in God. He asks for deliverance, and he asks not to let, her, let him become a reproach to the foolish. And he does again, we get this sense that he feels that the Lord is chastening him. When we see this in a lot of the Psalms of David, he has that impression that because of his sin, he's being chastened and he cries out for deliverance again and again. And this is the correct response. He seeks the Lord on these issues. He's frustrated. He's got enemies at his back. He still feels maybe he sinned and the Lord is chastening him. So he goes to the Lord. And again, that's always the safest place to go. We're always tempted in those situations to go somewhere else, aren't we? Or to just be on our own or do all these sorts of things. But the safest place is to go to the Lord. Again, he already knows how you're feeling. Let's just read verse 12 and 13. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you. A sojourner like all my fathers, turn your gaze away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Now, you see, if David was being sort of chastised at this stage, we know that he responds correctly. You can read about it in the, you know, the Lord in the book of Hebrews where he talks about what is the purpose of chastisement in the believer's life. To draw you back to himself. The actual ultimate end goal after you've been through it is that you will be in a closer position with the Lord. That's why we want to run to the Lord in these sorts of situations. And again, the temptation of the flesh will tell us to run the other way. And that's sort of the moment where we have that decision to make. Like, a bit like, you know, Moses, choose life this day. Which, 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 time, which day will you choose? Which will you choose, life or death? This is the same sort of thing. Not life or death, obviously, but whether we're going to be closer to the Lord, accept his discipline, or whether we're going to go away from it. And I'm sure we've all uh, been in that situation. If you, if you haven't, you will at some point in the Christian life. So his final plea here is to remove, for God to remove this chastening so he can just enjoy his final years with the Lord. 
And notice that it says, do not be silent, my tears. And I get the impression here that as David is praying, it's a personal prayer, it's a passionate prayer, a prayer of his deep emotion. And his prayer sort of gives way to tears now. If any of you have ever been moved to tears in prayer, you'll, you'll understand this feeling. Uh, it's so intense, such an intensity. And for him, I think it's because he's feeling distant from the Lord. You, you pick up on that throughout David's sentence. Oh, Lord, please deliver me, rescue me from this pit. We see it, again, so much with David's life. And in light of all this, you know, he's, if, he, if he is fairly old when he's writing this, his career is sort of coming to an end. Often that'll be when he's got time, it says, musing. He's musing on things and he's got time to think. And we know there are things in life that cause us to think about the brevity of life. Quite often if you get sick in life, quite often when sort of some massive world event happens, it just turns people's eyes away from their immediate surroundings to the larger picture which often involves thinking about the things of the Lord. The Lord can use those events, but David here is looking to the Lord. I believe it's natural for a believer to want God to teach him. That should be, like I said, remember, we're disciples, we're learners. A learner has to have a teacher, and that is God, ultimately. We want to live wisely in this world. Uh, we want him to be patient with us, uh, especially through all of our sin and through all of our shortcomings. Just as David prays here, we ask for God's deliverance, and we know, obviously, we know the mercy probably much more in light of the cross than David did at this time. So we're even more blessed in that respect. But that is Psalm 39. And then we're going to go straight into Psalm 40 because they kind of continue the same train of thought. So let's read verses 1 to 3. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. And he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust the Lord. And I like this because remember, we ended that psalm. It's quite a somber note the way that last psalm ends. And then immediately you move into this and it says, I waited patiently on the Lord. In those times when he was crying out with frustration, he probably had that silent feeling. Why is the Lord not speaking to me? And it says he waited patiently for the Lord. The anguish of the last son now gives way to the, the answered cries of David. And this term waiting on the Lord, let's just talk about that. What does that actually mean? Because it's one of these terms that we've all, in the evangelical world, we've heard it so much. It's not just sitting idly waiting for God to open that door, another sort of cliche we use, or to bring that person into our life, or to do all these things. I'm not disparaging any of those things. Don't get me wrong, God can do those things. But the attitude of waiting on the Lord is more, it's a divine activity in one sense. It's an expectation that God is going to work, and therefore in itself it is an exercise of faith. You know, as you are waiting, you are exercising your faith that you worship and believe in a God who works in this world and in your life. And just like David, you might have to wait patiently at some times. But remember, God has not left us as orphans. He's given up the spirit. One of the fruits of the spirit is patience. And this is sort of how the cycle goes. But we wait patiently. And it says, God inclined and he heard my cry. This is what David, he, he heard the response of the Lord. And then it says, he brought me up out of the pit of destruction. And again, that's a strong language. This tells you where David was. He considered himself to be in the pit of destruction out of the miry clay, sort of the wet clay, or the, I'd imagine like the nearest thing would be if you've ever been to Pet Level Beach and you've walked in the sort of very sort of quicksand that they have there and then tried to get out of it. It's very hard and your shoes get messy and then, you know, your kid starts to drown next to you and you have to pull him out and then you fall in and it's just a, it's a total mess. But 
in David's context, he was probably more thinking about the stories of people like, you know, we read, you remember when Jeremiah was thrown into the cistern and it tells that whole bit about how at the bottom it was just all muddy and he was getting just stuck in the mud and the clay there, the miry clay. We find ourselves sort of scrambling around pathetically trying to, to get out. We can't move. And what do we need at that moment? We really need someone to actually lift us out. That's what Jeremiah needed, someone to lift him out of the cistern there. And when God delivers us, he says, he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. And that's what God does. You see, the problem with Mari clay is it's not a firm foundation. This is the point. Notice how often foundations are talked about in the Bible. Jesus told those famous stories, didn't he, about building a house on a firm foundation. We call Jesus the rock. All these things indicate a strength, something that cannot be moved, something that your feet can stand upon and you don't have to worry about it giving way. This is what he's talking about here. And because of that, David then had a new song in his mouth. This is a song of praise, something like this psalm that he's probably writing here. Some reason to give thanks for the Lord's deliverance again in his life. And then he says the end of verse 3, many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. And again, this is sort of the slight evangelistic concept of this when we give testimony to what the lord has done in our lives that is a reason that people will look and think and hear and understand and when you tell of the lord's deliverance and david sense it was physical from enemies here but it was still a public declaration of trust and faith in god many will see and fear and because of that they will trust in the lord we have the same principle today think how many testimony books you've read Usually the first half is sort of describing the miry pit, the miry clay that the people are stuck in. And then the second half are describing the way that God delivered them out of that pit. We get that pattern just so much and they make for a wonderful kind of faith-filled reading. Not the only way, but that is just one popular format. And I think that's what David's, the principle that he's getting at here. Many will see and fear and then trust the Lord when they hear about how God delivered them. Let's look at verse 4. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud, nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done and, the thoughts, and your thoughts towards us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak to them, they would be too numerous to count. This is a continual theme in the Psalms. The Psalms themselves are really a record of praise and of man being blessed by God. And again, why? <laughs> because we need to be reminded of who God is and that God loves to bless his people over and over again. It really doesn't matter how long you've been walking with the Lord for. At some point in this world, you're going to encounter something where you're going to need to know that blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. That is the place, the solid rock, the firm foundation, all those principles. That's why I believe we see it just over and over and over again. We're only on Psalm 40, and we've heard it many times. We're going to hear it many, many more times again. It's a lesson that God wants us to have. Because the problem is, if we don't have it clearly in our head, that trusting in the Lord is where we find that firm foundation, we so quickly devolve to our own strengths, our own wisdom in the situations, our own way of trying to understand things, and we start doing things that we think are going to solve the problem. Our own solutions, many times our own lusts, will lead us into sin. And before we know it, we're right back in that miry clay again, and we need God's grace and mercy and deliverance again. Many of you will resonate with that cycle. I know I do. We all do. David did. And then notice he turns now and he gives advice about people. You see, the first thing he says, it, 
he, he wants to be clear where people are putting their trust, and it's really in whom are they trusting. It's, it says, in the Lord, and it's all capitals. So this is not the church that people go to. This is not the, the denomination statement of faith that they hold. This is not the creed necessarily. Again, not that any of those things are wrong, but this is very clearly speaking about the person, the Lord. You have trust in the Lord. And then he goes on and he says, do trust in the Lord, but then he says, don't trust in the proud. Don't turn to the proud. Don't be tempted to go to those people who are maybe a bit arrogant, overly confident. They might be strong leaders. They might be guys who look like they have all the answers. He says, don't go to them. Not that you don't get good leaders who do have good answers. I'm not saying that. But in this context here, he's, he's making a contrast between trusting the Lord and trusting people who, who are basically just men and look like they've got all the answers. He says, don't do that. And then he says, neither don't go to the false the people who are speaking falsehood either. So don't go to the proud. Don't go to the people who are clearly speaking falsehood either. These are probably the ones who are acting rashly, impulsively, without due consideration. We meet people... Uh, like this all the time. And again, I would say this is a very timely word for our day, because again, I, I just you can't escape the fact that it seems to be that people are really acting like the fate of the world at the moment, hands on, the select, on a select few politicians. Or it may seem to others that the select few people in the world have a disproportionate power over many other people in the world. That may be the case, but again, we don't trust in them. We don't fall for that. We don't put our lives or our trust in those things. We trust in the Lord. And that is it. That's what David's getting at here. Why do we trust him? What does it say? Basically, his works are too numerous to count. <laughs> and I like that. As David basically saying, there's just too many things that I could say about the Lord of why we should trust him. What has the Lord done? If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. It's a lovely phrase. You go through the scriptures and you'll find all the time that God has delivered. Go through church history and you'll find just thousands upon thousands upon millions of testimony of the same thing. God's thoughts towards us. Now, I like that little phrase because it implies that his thoughts towards us are almost too numerous. And this is a nice concept. It's almost like God's song to us. He's thinking about us continually. And I don't say that in a way that means that we are the focus of his world. Please don't think that at all. But, you know, God gave his son. This is his plan of redemption. He loves his people. God is a God of love. And he thinks about these things. Let's look at verse 6. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said... Behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And this is a really important piece of scripture. I want to draw your attention to this because this is a prophetic portion of scripture. One of these little gems that we find tucked away in these Psalms here. This is a messianic portion. We'll see how that's fulfilled in a moment. David makes the point, though, that without an obedient heart, God is not interested in mere external sacrifices. We talked about this a little bit on Sunday. We talked about Nadab and Abihu offering sacrifices in the wrong way, doing the external trappings but not following the word of the Lord. I see the same thing being spoken about here. He doesn't really, it's not the external offering on its own. Don't get me wrong, they're not bad. God commanded them. But the point is they're supposed to be the external outworking of an internal faith that these people have. If you do them without the faith, 
They are just that, external trappings, and they have no efficacious value to your life. In fact, God says they're useless in that respect. We understand that principle. And we would say he doesn't want those who are just playing or trying to, or too wrapped up in a religious system or using the external trappings to justify themselves and thinking that has any effect. It's all got to be about that first thing that he said, trusting in the Lord. Now, David, I believe, had a, he was probably thinking about an incident with Saul, his uh, pre, uh, forebearer to the throne. You remember in 1 Samuel 15, Saul's commanded to completely destroy the Amalekites, and he doesn't. And then I'll read the narrative to you. It says this, Then Saul and Samuel is the one, the prophet Samuel comes to him and wants to know what's going on. And Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord, and I went on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and I brought back Agag, king of, the Amalek, king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people did take some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. So he's basically saying, we did it all, Samuel. We did exactly what he said. And a few of the people may have taken some things, but that was actually because they wanted to offer you sacrifice. You can see what he's doing here. He's sort of trying to make it look good. And we remember when we studied this, it was a great episode. And then Samuel says, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And that's the point here that I believe David is making with his text. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. He goes on in Samuel, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. You see, because an obedient heart is a heart that's exercising faith. This is not obedience, obedience in the sense of an external legislation that you are doing. True obedience comes from a true heart of faith and a devotion to the Lord. He then says again, sorry, the Samuel narrative still, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, and that's the point. You have also, he has also rejected you from being king. So he's saying this to Saul, your heart is not with me. You tried to do what I said, you didn't do it properly. He knows that it's not a true, you know, he's doing the external trappings, he didn't even do them right. And the reason why is because he had already rejected the word of the Lord, and therefore he gets rejected as the king of Israel. And that's probably the episode that David has in his life. But ultimately, I believe he's pointing forward, and you see this in the New Testament, perfect obedience to the Father's will. That's what we're getting at here. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Who was the one who was perfectly obedient, absolutely perfectly obedient to the Father's will. There was only one person, and that was Jesus. It actually says, doesn't it, in the book of Philippians, that he was obedient unto death, obedient to the point of death. And this is why we see this in the New Testament. If you, ha if you want to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, uh, is, this is such a good scripture, we'll read this together. Because again, I just, I'm always fascinated by the way that these New Testament books just draw on these seemingly quite small portions of the Psalms that we would probably read over and we'd never have a clue that they're actually referring to Jesus Christ. But the way the Spirit-inspired authors uh, use them is just fascinating to me. Hebrews 10, verses 5 to 10, and notice the way he quotes the Psalm that we're reading. He says, Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. That's the quote from Psalm 40 that we're looking at. And then let's read a little bit further, verse 8 in Hebrews 10. It says, after saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them 
which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. And that's the point. That was why Saul was taken away from being king. He wasn't doing God's will. Jesus Christ was doing God's will. Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. It's such an amazing picture of that perfect obedience. Only Christ has that. This is the will of the Father. The obedience to the word was really Jesus' mission. Let me read to you John 4 again, and we'll see this. John 4, 31 to 34. It says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. I'm talking to Jesus, obviously. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is what we have here. Jesus' actual mission, his spiritual food in that sense, was perfect obedience to the will of God. That was actually one of the very reasons he came. What did he cry out in Gethsemane? Not, your, not my will, but yours. This was Jesus' mission, perfect obedience. And why? We see it in the last verse of our psalm there. Your law is within my heart. I love that expression. I love that phrase. You find this concept a lot in the Bible. The more we have the word of God in our lives, I believe making an application to us now, the stronger our desire to please him will be. And the negative of that, I believe, is probably also true. The further we have been from the word of God, the less concerned we are about pleasing the Lord. So I would say if there are times when we do feel a little apathetic, where we feel like maybe we're not fussed, I know it may sound like a cliche, but it's, it's not, we need to get into the word of God. We need to get it into our hearts. And that will look different for many different people, but the Lord knows, and that is the thing. Now, if I asked a question of all of us right now, what is in our heart right now? And I'm not trying to be mysterious and say we're all like sinners at heart. Like we understand the scriptures, yes. But what is in our heart? And what I mean by that is what are the dreams that we're thinking about at night? What are the thoughts that really are consuming our time day in, day out? And I know we're busy and we have things to do, but there must be a point, there must be a line when we have to say, is the word of God in our heart? And we ask ourselves, if someone was metaphorically to split open our heart, what would come out? Would it be the cares of this world? Or would it be the word of God spilling out? Because it's only when the word of God is in our heart like that that we have that increased desire to do his will. For this is the love of God, that you obey my commandments and they are not burdensome. Love, obedience, the spirit of God, the word of God. All of these things are just connected in that beautiful way that the Lord links all these things up in our life. It's the word of God. And this for me, this is the end psalm almost in the, in the book of Psalms, isn't it? But it takes us right back to the first, remember the first psalm we studied? How blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates on it day and night. That's how you get the word of God into your heart. And when you get the word of God into your heart, that'll affect the desires you have in this world, it'll affect your focus and everything you do in this world. And yes, it may be uncomfortable. We all know that feeling too, don't we? When the word of God just convicts us of things. And then... We're like David, we're in that miry clay, we cry to the Lord, throw ourselves upon his mercy, and the Lord is gracious to save. Let's read verses 9, now back in, back in the psalm now, verse 9. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. 
Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord, you know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. You, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head and my heart has failed me. You see, so I would say in light of his position here as the anointed king, the public leader of Israel, the Lord requires that he publicly praises the Lord in front of the congregation of Israel. He was to lead by example in that sense. And this is a very good principle for us as believers. Yes, particularly for church leaders, but also I would say generally for all believers, because we are all commanded to publicly declare the gospel to the world. And what is the gospel other than the work that God has done? That was what the Bible, you know, the progressive revelation that we find throughout the Bible is really a great unveiling of God's work of redemption, which is the gospel culminating in Jesus Christ. And we are demanded to declare praise to that in the world. And then we see verse 11. You see, the tone of the psalm changes here. Now notice this. So we've been on this sort of high as God has, we waited and God has heard him. And now we sort of get the impression that he's going back down into a kind of pit uh, from verses 11 and 12. He now pleads that the same loving kindness and truth that he has publicly declared in front of the nation of Israel as their king, he now pleads that that loving kindness and truth would be personally true in his own life. And again, I find this just such a good lesson to us. This is all no good if we really don't believe what we profess to believe. Like if we really don't think it's true, then what are we doing? <laughs> we'll end up like Saul, I would say, doing the externals and we don't have the heart. And that's the danger. It's no good if we don't believe what we're saying. And that's why it's very important that we know in whom we have trusted. It's back to David's first point, you trust in the Lord. We get that expression from Paul in the New Testament, I know in whom I have believed. It's the same principle. But he seems to sort of flip back into one of his down periods now, we might say. And he does mention in the psalm that it's probably due to his own sin. You see, note David is so quick to confess his sin. And this is why I believe that in spite of his sins, David is always called a man after God's own heart because he is grieved by his sin and he confesses it. And that's a very, it's one reason why I believe he's so relatable. And it's one reason why I believe the Psalms have brought so much comfort. You know, they speak to the human soul in a way that sometimes the other books don't because they sort of speak through the language of emotion. This is poetic language. And for a lot of us, that's just powerful. You can say things that you maybe wouldn't say in a letter or an epistle you speak in this way, we understand that. We have these experiences in the Christian life. We're flying high, things have been going great, and then all of a sudden we kind of crash. Ever had that? You know that? We've all had that. In these times, it is important to remember, do what David did here. It is God's loving kindness and God's truth that will deliver you, and you throw yourself upon it. That, that's it. You know, I know that's easier said than done, but it's God's loving kindness and God's truth. Let's read verse 13. Be pleased, O Lord, to, do, to deliver me. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. Now we see here David hastily prays for God's deliverance once again. Now, David, obviously, we know he did have real enemies who were seeking his life and trying to trap him and do all these sorts of things. 
Um, he spent a lot of his life on the run, and we know the life of David. He had real physical enemies, in addition to his own personal failings that he's so freely confessing to the Lord throughout his Psalms, but both needed the same thing, they needed God. He, took the, you know, he considered them the same, one was physical, one was spiritual, he directed them to the same place, God. Verse 16, let all who seek you, let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. So we really get, this is a good summing up of the psalm here for me. We rejoice in the Lord. We seek the Lord and we rejoice in him. We love the salvation he has accomplished for us. And this is a thing. I think maybe the longer you've been a Christian, sometimes these very fundamental truths run the risk of becoming commonplace in the sense that we're so used to hearing about them, especially if we're attending churches where we're hearing the word of God taught. And you, you sort of have that slight inclination to, I know about that, you know, so you can zone out. And I think this is very dangerous because you find a continual theme and it doesn't matter who's writing, what New Testament author, Old Testament author, the themes they repeat again and again and again are because we need reminding of these things. We have to continually fall in love with the salvation of what God has done for us. And then it says, we will say continually, the Lord be magnified. Because the Lord is praiseworthy. That's what magnified really means in, this, in that sense. We rejoice in the Lord. We magnify our God. And at the same time, we know we're sinners. We know we need the Lord's mercy and deliverance. We know this happens again and again. And like David, we throw ourselves upon the loving kindness and the truth of the Lord. And this is what David does. It's a great example for us. Let's go into Psalm 41. And this is, sorry, the, the final book of book one in the Psalms. Let's just read, go straight and read the first three verses. How blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive. And he shall be called blessed upon the earth. And do not give him over to the desire of his enemies. The Lord will sustain him upon his sickbed in his illness, you will restore him to health. You know, I like this. Notice how this psalm starts. How blessed. How blessed. And notice that's the, this is the bookend of, of the first book of psalms. And the first psalm, remember, I read it to you a minute ago, it also started with the words, how blessed. And this just really sums up psalms to me. They are a blessing to us. How blessed are we? God blesses those. It says in this first verse, he blesses those who take care of those who cannot care for themselves. Now, some of your translations may say, who considers the poor? The ASB that I read says, who considers the helpless? Now, I believe helpless is a slightly help, more helpful connotation because as we read the term poor, in our context, we generally think of economic poverty, don't we? That's the sort of, and we start thinking, and from a Western context, economic poverty is a very different thing from it might be in other countries. So it just a, opens up a whole broad sway of interpretation there. Helpless is... A, is I think better trying to get the concept. It can include economic poverty, but it's a much broader category that could be helpless for a number of other reasons. He says those who um, care for that, for the helpless, those who cannot care for themselves, are the ones the Lord blesses. And I believe we we see this being played out by the church throughout 2,000 years. Really, now the nation of Israel was different from the surrounding nations at their time. A lot of the laws in the Old Testament 
elevated the moral status of various different groups far beyond their neighbors in the ancient world. But we have the New Testament concept too. Um, Jesus Christ elevated many things far beyond even the Old Testament in that sense. And we see this played out through the church because Jesus gives the command to care for the poor, to care for the sick, the orphans, the widows. This is the command of Christ. And it has always been the mission of the church. If you go through the history of Christian missions, and it's a massive, massive field, right from the time of Paul all the way up until now, and you'll see that Christian missions have always been at the forefront of healthcare, whether it's hospitals, prison reforms, orphanages, care homes, mission medical centers, food banks, soup kitchens, on and on and on these things go. This is the outworking of these teachings in the life of the church by people who trust the Lord. And I believe we also see this maybe on a residual, sort of residual effect of this on a national scale. You think of all the Western nations that are generally founded upon Judeo-Christian principles, even if they're not really operating like that anymore today, the inertia is still there in a small sense. There's no surprise that those nations are the most charitable nations on the earth. They are the ones that have given more to foreign aid than any other nations in the world. I believe that is a testimony to the way that this plays out in a national sense too. Like I say, albeit these things are dissipating now. But David assured them that those who have this concern would experience God's deliverance, and David knows this from experience in his own life. And the specific blessings that it lifts in the psalm we just read, things like long life, a good reputation on earth, protection from enemies, sustenance in sickness, restoration to health. And at this stage we may sort of think, Okay, well, a lot of people are sick, and you can sort of see where maybe some people in certain movements, you know, God promises you a healing. If you're sick, then you, you don't have faith. You have to understand the context. This is David here, and he's talking about the Levit. This is a Levitical mosaic context here. If you read parts of the law, like Deuteronomy 28, a lot of the blessings associated with obedience were these sorts of things. They were more physical than they were spiritual. And that is the context. That's not to deny that there were spiritual ones, but in the New Testament, that flipped around. Under the law of Christ, not under the law of Moses, most of the things that we find reading as blessings are spiritual blessings, like the Apostle Paul enumerates in Ephesians chapter 1, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That is the ultimate fulfillment. So don't be fooled by that, people misusing that, that text. I'll just make a note of that. Right, let's read verses 4 to 9. As for me... I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil against me. When will he die and his name perish? And when he comes to see me, he speaks falsehood. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. When he goes outside, he tells it. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt, saying, A wicked thing is poured out upon him, that when he lies down, he will not rise up again. And even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. You see, it seems like David, you know, he's got a pretty bad lot. There are people out there trying to do these things to him. We see David again plead for God's mercy in light of sins he's committed. Look at that in verse uh, 4 again. Be gracious to me, heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. It's just like every time he comes to the Lord in prayer, he always confesses his sins. And this is, again, a good pattern. And he talks about these enemies who are doing things to him. He said that the Lord blesses those who take care of the helpless, and now he gives the opposite again. David likes contrast. He gives the opposite of caring for the helpless, and that is those who exploit people. People who hope for his death, he's speaking personally here. People who spoke hypocritically about him, 
and people who spread gossip about his uh, dying, all these sorts of things. And again, most scholars, uh, and I would probably say it's right, they believe he's referring to a very specific incident in his life here. David did, in fact, have a very close friend who stabbed him in the back. That phrase, who ate my bread, that close friend, that's a very intimate phrase. Ate my bread implies close table fellowship in the sense that they, were, they had access to your house and to your table and you were giving them the goods of your house. You know, that's a very intimate fellowship. So to be betrayed by that person is, that's why it affected David so intimately. I believe he's referring to Ahithophel. This was the counsellor of David. You remember when Absalom, right back in uh, second, second Samuel, you read about it, he betrayed David, Ahithophel did. He sided with Absalom and tried to usurp the kingdom and he rebelled and he basically stabbed David in the back. That's, that's what happened. This is probably what David's referring to in the immediate context. But this treachery is so specific. It was such a stabbing in the back of someone so intimate to him that, again, you find the New Testament authors picking up on it and, again, making a prophetic allusion to Christ. And, again, it just fascinates me how they do this. Turn to John 13. Again, let's just read this together. John chapter 13. And then we're almost finished on this psalm. John 13, verse 16 to 21, says this. And you'll, you'll all know this story. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one, sent, the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but, is that the scripture, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. And then look at look what he quotes. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. He quotes from that psalm. And then he says, from now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me and the one who receives me uh, receives the one who sent me. And when Jesus said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And you know the story, whoever dips his hand in the sop and it ends up being Judas here is the one who betrays him. But the way that the allusion to the psalm plays out you see, it was David who was stabbed in the back by his closest friend. And here we see the Davidic king, the true ultimate fulfillment of the line of David here, stabbed in the back by one who was at his table. They were actually literally having table fellowship during this meal as this happened. It's, it's the same principle playing out. It's just fascinating. Let's read verses 10, 11 and 12. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you are pleased with me, because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and you set me in your presence forever. So David asked God basically to be gracious and deliver him from his trials so that he can repay those enemies. And again, this falls foreign maybe on New Testament ears because we have the, we have the Lord's command, don't we? love your enemies in that sense so we don't quite understand this basically again it's context you see in david's time israel was chosen to be god's instrument god's people god's light on this world and the king of israel you remember the story of why they had a king of israel he was chosen to be god's instrument god's anointed those who were opposing god's anointed were basically considered to be opposing the lord the king was God's agent of judgment in Israel. I don't actually believe this has a direct parallel in our age, in the New Testament age of the church. But in the context of David, this is what he's praying for. And then let's just read the final verse. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, 
from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. It's just a great little doxology there. And like I said, because remember, this is closing book one of the Psalms. So this is not just the end of this Psalm. I believe this is actually the end of the entire first 41 Psalms that we have here. And it basically is that same principle of blessing. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, because he is the eternal God. And then it just says, amen and amen. The God of Israel is eternally worthy of praise because of the mercy and love that he shows us and because of who he is. And that's the lesson. Let's leave it there. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.